Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. This holiday, whether you're making a Baker's Simple Truth Turkey for 40 or a Murray's Baked Brie for two, Baker's has fast, fresh delivery and free pickup, so you can make holiday meals that bring you all together to create memories that last. Baker's, fresh for everyone. Free pickup on orders of $35 or more. Restrictions may apply. And right now, you can save when you shop your faves. Just buy six or more participating sale items and save 50 cents each with your card. Baker's, fresh for everyone. On Saturday, October 10th, 1991, at about 12.30 p.m., a housekeeper was doing her rounds on the fifth floor of the Sheraton Inn, just off Highway 81, in Martinsburg, West Virginia. The woman knocked on the door to room 517, and when she received no answer, she used her passkey to enter the room. At first, nothing seemed out of the ordinary. The bed was turned down, but looked unslept in. A man's clothing was laid out on the foot of the bed. But even still, there was something about the room that gave the housekeeper the creeps nonetheless. She turned toward the bathroom and immediately stumbled backwards. All she needed to see was the red smear on the floor for her to know that she had to get out of that room right now. She dashed out of the hotel room and ran to tell her supervisor there was something terribly wrong in room 517. The woman's supervisor went into the bathroom, and what she found there would haunt her for a long time after. Her view was partially obscured by the open door and shower curtain, but she could still see enough. A half-empty bottle of red wine stood between the bathtub and the toilet. A cigarette ashtray was on the floor, next to a piece of broken glass. Gouts of blood sprayed the walls like a Jackson Pollock painting. A couple of blood-soaked towels were stuffed under the sink. The supervisor would later tell the police that it looked to her as if someone had tried to use those towels to mop up the blood in the floor, but all they managed to do was smear it around. Inside the bathtub was the nude body of a blonde man, his bony knees poking up out of the bloody water. When the police and paramedics arrived, they were able to determine that the victim was a white male in his 40s. He had a dozen deep slashes in his wrists, eight in one wrist and four in the other and a shoelace wrapped around his throat. Floating in the bloody water along with him were two plastic waste paper basket liners. When the paramedics hauled the man's body out of the tub, it revealed a single-edged razor blade, a paper coaster, and an old Milwaukee beer can. In the main room, police found a note torn from a legal pad laying on top of the bedroom desk. It read, To those who I love the most, please forgive me for the worst possible thing I could have done. Most of all, I'm sorry to my son. I know deep down inside that God will let me in. Later on, the investigators would learn that this man was, in fact, a writer. And assuming he wrote the note, they would be the last words he ever put down on paper. The man's wallet identified himself as Joseph Daniel Casalero, although most everyone just called him Danny. 
It turns out that Danny Casolero was a journalist. And although investigators were quick to write his death off as a suicide, some people believe that he stumbled across the story of a lifetime. A story that threatened to reveal a vast criminal cartel and government conspiracy. A group of dangerous men who would go to any ends to shut him up. Even murder. I'm Nate Hale with a reminder that just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. And this is The Conspirators. By most accounts, everyone liked Danny Casolaro. He was the perpetual nice guy. Handsome, funny, and affable. He was born the second of six children to a Roman Catholic family in McLean, Virginia. One of his six siblings died in infancy. Another sister died of a drug overdose in San Francisco's Haight-Ashbury neighborhood. Danny's family had money, and he lived in a $400,000 home in Fairfax, Virginia on three acres of land. After college, he married and later divorced a former Miss Virginia named Terrell Pace. The marriage produced one son, Trey, whom everyone agreed that Danny adored. Although officially Danny was a writer by trade, it's often been called into question just how successful a writer he really was. He dabbled in journalism, and he published one novel and a collection of short stories with a vanity press. Toward the end of the 1970s, he expanded his interests into publishing, when he acquired an interest in a series of computer trade publications. Danny sold his stake in the company in 1990, although some of his friends thought he sold his stake in the company too soon and he could have gotten a lot more for the sale if he'd only held on to it a little longer. In early 1990, Danny was eagerly looking for his next big break. That's when a former colleague in the computer magazine business suggested he look into a scandal involving some allegedly shady government dealings with a company called INSLAW, the Institute for Law and Social Research. Back in 1982, the U.S. Justice Department granted $10 million to INSLAW to develop a computer program that would aid U.S. attorneys in tracking criminal cases from office to office. The idea was that this software would be installed in 42 district attorney's offices across the country. Remember, this was back before there was an internet as we know it today, which meant this software was something truly revolutionary for its time. With this software, these offices would then be able to share data, track criminals, and potentially predict their behavior before they even committed a crime. The company's founder, William Hamilton, called the software the Prosecutor's Management Information System, or PROMISE. Hamilton was a former employee of the National Security Agency, and it was through his government contacts that he was able to obtain the grant that funded his software. But early on, it was evident to everyone that Promise had way more potential than just tracking criminal cases. With the right modifications, it could potentially be used to track all sorts of people for all sorts of reasons. After a few years of development, Hamilton claimed that the government stole Promise from his company and illegally distributed it, potentially robbing him of millions of dollars of revenue. In return, the Justice Department complained they had done nothing wrong and that they owned the Promise software and could do with it as they please. According to Hamilton, he had made a number of modifications to the software at the government's request. But after he delivered the modified software to the Justice Department, they immediately suspended the first payments they were supposed to receive. The Justice Department countered that the Hamiltons were overcharging them. 
By 1985, when it became obvious the Justice Department wasn't going to honor the contract, the Hamiltons sued. The case bounced around the courts after that. In 1988, federal bankruptcy judge George Basin ruled that the government had taken the software by trickery, fraud, and deceit, and was essentially forcing Hamilton's company into bankruptcy. That decision was upheld by a federal district court, but was later overturned on appeal in 1991. It should be pointed out that right around the time when Judge Basin began to rule against the government, he was denied reappointment to the bench, making him only one of four bankruptcy judges who had been denied reappointment in the past several years. If that doesn't sound fishy enough, the man who would eventually take Judge Basin's seat was one of the very same lawyers who had been arguing on the government's behalf in the Inslaw case. Needless to say, things didn't go well in court for Inslaw after that. A congressional subcommittee was later convened to investigate the Inslaw affair, but because so many witnesses refused to take the stand under oath, the committee was eventually forced to report that they couldn't positively say whether there was any wrongdoing in the government's part or not, which is a bit different from actually saying the government hadn't done anything wrong. After Danny Casalero began investigating the Inslaw affair, he soon began hearing some even more disturbing rumors about what the government might have been up to. A few informants began telling him that the Justice Department may have begun inserting special backdoors into the computer code that would allow the U.S. government to spy on anyone they sold the software to. This included a number of foreign governments. Danny's primary source for a lot of this story came from a man named Michael Riconosciuto. It was Riconosciuto who claimed in an official court affidavit that he was the one who had been hired to add the backdoors in the software so that the government could spy on dozens of foreign governments. But Riconosciuto's story didn't end there. He claimed that he had worked on these software changes on the Cabazon Indian Reservation, just outside Indio, California. It was there on that same reservation that Ricardo Shudo claimed to have also worked on several secret weapons programs with the third largest security firm in the country, the Wackenhut Corporation. Ricardo Shudo also claimed that the Cabazon Reservation was being used by a vast covert organization comprised of several former U.S. intelligence officials and members of organized crime. According to Riconosciuto, the Cabazon Reservation was the perfect location for covert activities to take place because of its unique sovereign status that allowed people to get away with whatever they wanted away from prying eyes. Keep in mind, the entire Cabazon tribe only consisted of about 30 people. Yet somehow, millions of dollars began flowing into the area, including a luxury casino. That money had to come from somewhere. According to Riconosciuto and other sources Danny Casalero heard from, it was a combination of dirty money from the U.S. government as well as money from organized crime. These, of course, were things that the tribe strongly refuted. Now, it's unknown how much of what Riconosciuto said could be believed. In fact, a lot of people have written the man off as a kook. If you read some of the stories he told Danny, he had either been involved in or had direct knowledge of practically every major conspiracy theory since the end of World War II. This included Area 51, Watergate, alleged CIA-led drug smuggling out of Southeast Asia, the so-called October Surprise in which secret payments were allegedly made to the Iranians to hold on to the hostages until after Jimmy Carter lost the election, and of course the King Kong of all conspiracies, the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. Now, I could go down any of these rabbit holes and talk for hours about any of these subjects, but for now, I'll just mention a couple of them that seem to have some weight to them. Right around the same time the Inslaw case was reaching its peak, other revelations were coming out 
that the CIA was working with a bank called the Bank of Credit and Commerce International. Also, this was the era of the Iran-Contra affair, in which it was revealed that a rogue element of the U.S. government had gone against the wishes of Congress and were illegally selling arms to the Iranians in order to fund weaponry for the Contras in Nicaragua. According to Reconosciuto, both of these events were tied directly to the shadowy organization behind the Inslaw case. Keep in mind, even Danny didn't believe everything Reconosciuto told him. But some of the things Reconosciuto claimed did check out and were able to be corroborated. Even though a lot of people were quick to paint Reconosciuto as a nut, it was a little difficult to write him off completely because he also had the credentials and work history to back himself up. Newspaper articles exist that describe him as a child prodigy. When he was just 10 years old, he wired his entire neighborhood with a working private telephone network that undercut the phone company. When he was 16 years old, he wowed a Stanford University professor by building his own argon laser. In the 1970s, he worked as a mine engineer in Maricopa, California. And in the years that followed, he began doing contract work for the government. Now, whether you believe in conspiracies or not, it is awfully coincidental that just eight days after submitting his affidavit in the Inslaw case, Rakanashuto was arrested for, and later convicted, of distributing methamphetamines and methadone. But even that didn't stop him from talking. In the summer of 1990, Bill Hamilton gave Danny a 12-page memo that Rakanashuto wrote that gave a high-level description of the vast criminal and intelligence cartel he'd been involved with. Danny took this story and ran with it. He began to develop this story into a book he originally planned on calling Behold, a Pale Horse, in reference to the biblical passage about death riding a pale horse. He would later change this title and come up with a new metaphor that he felt better described the far-reaching tentacles of this conspiracy. He called it the octopus. Which brings us to Danny's final days. There are really many reasons to listen to our podcast, Big Picture Science. It's kind of a challenge to summarize them all, Molly. Okay, here's a reason to listen to our show, Big Picture Science, because you love to be surprised by science news. We love to be surprised by science news. So, for instance, I learned on our own show that I had been driving around with precious metals in my truck before it was stolen. That was brought up in our show about precious metals and also rare metals, like most of the things in your catalytic converter. I was surprised to learn that we may begin naming heat waves like we do hurricanes. You know, prepare yourself for heat wave Lucifer. I don't think I can prepare myself for that. Look, we like surprising our listeners. We like surprising ourselves by reporting new developments in science and while asking the big picture questions about why they matter and how they will affect our lives today and in the future. Well, we can't affect lives in the past, right? Oh, I, I guess that's a point. <laughs> so the podcast is called Big Picture Science, and you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. We are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us. We hope you'll take a listen. Before we continue, I'd like to share a quick word about our sponsors. If you're like me, a fictional spy on the run from non-existent government agencies, then you're often not going to want to spend a lot of time in the kitchen. In that case, might I recommend HelloFresh, the meal delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers your favorite step-by-step -step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you can just cook, eat, and enjoy. It's really convenient, which means you can tailor your delivery day to your busy schedule. HelloFresh offers a wide variety of chef-curated recipes that change weekly. So far, I've tried the meatloaf, the chicken quesadillas, and my personal favorite, the vegetable orzo pasta with Italian sausage. 
Seriously, it was really yummy. I could go for a bowl right now. All these meals were delicious and so easy to cook. In fact, most of their meals can be made in 30 minutes or less. You won't have to spend a ton of time meal planning or grocery shopping when the food just comes right to your door ready to go. And if you don't think you can cook, you absolutely can. HelloFresh provides easy-to-follow recipe cards with all the pre-portioned ingredients. HelloFresh opens up a world of possibilities and makes it so that you can try things you never thought you could cook on your own and enjoy eating outside your comfort zone. If you're interested in trying HelloFresh out, right now you can get $30 off your first week of HelloFresh just by visiting HelloFresh.com and entering Conspirators30 at checkout. One more thing I want to tell you about is actually another podcast you might be interested in. If you're a fan of The Conspirators, and I kind of hope you are considering you're listening right now, then you'll probably also like a new show from Parcast called Female Criminals. Each episode of the show analyzes the psychology of some very wicked women. You'll get to hear the history and dive deep into the minds of people like Eileen Warnos, Mata Hari, the Cocaine Goddess, and many more of the most notorious female criminals in history. If that sounds interesting to you, then subscribe to Female Criminals on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, Google Play, or your favorite podcast app. Or visit parcast.com slash criminals to start listening now. And now, back to my show. Danny spent a year researching and trying to sell his manuscript to publishers. On August 5th, 1991, he phoned one of his contacts and told him that Time Magazine had assigned him an article about the octopus, and that the publisher Little Brown had expressed interest in a book contract. Both Time and Little Brown would later state that neither one of these claims was true. That same day, Danny spoke to a friend named Ben Mason, and it was to him that he expressed his frustration with his inability to sell his book for the past 18 months. He also hadn't been sleeping well. Danny claimed that over the past few months he'd been receiving threatening phone calls in the middle of the night. The day after his conversation with Ben Mason, Danny's housekeeper Olga helped him pack up his belongings for a trip he planned on taking to Martinsburg to meet an important source. Olga recalled helping Danny load a thick sheaf of papers into a brown or black briefcase. It should be noted that after Danny's body was discovered, neither the briefcase nor any of the documents he brought with him were ever found. Olga told the Village Voice that later that same day she began receiving her own disturbing phone calls. One was from a man who threatened to cut up Danny's body and throw it to the sharks. A second call came about an hour later during which a different voice simply said, Drop dead. Throughout the night, several more calls came in. Only on each of those calls, no one spoke at all. Danny checked into the Sheraton Hotel in Martinsburg, Virginia on August 8th. A few minutes later, he went to the Stone Crab Inn where he downed an entire bottle of wine during his three hours there. Around 3 p.m., he left the Stone Crab Inn and headed to a nearby pizza hut where he flirted with the waitress and tried ordering a pitcher of beer. But the waitress told him she couldn't serve him beer unless he ordered food. So he ordered a pizza to go with it. At around 5 p.m., Danny returned to the Sheraton, spent some time in the cocktail lounge, during which time he met with another man, a waitress described as Middle Eastern-looking. At about 5.30 that night, Danny returned to the lounge for a bucket of ice. On the way, he bumped into a fellow named Mike Looney, who was renting the room right next door. Looney told authorities that he bumped into Danny again around 8 p.m. that night, down in the lounge, during which time Danny was eager to tell Looney all about the story he was working on and how he was preparing to meet a source at 9 p.m. that he claimed was going to crack the entire story wide open. 
But nine o'clock came and went, and no meeting took place. A little later, Danny left to make a phone call, and when he returned, he told Looney that he thought his source had blown him off. They parted ways around 11.30 that night. Looney recalled how excited and happy Danny appeared to be as he left. At 2 p.m. the following day, Danny met with an informant named Bill Turner in Turner's car in the lot of the Sheraton. Turner gave Danny an accordion file full of documents. At around 2.30 p.m., Danny returned to the Stone Crab where he had a shrimp cocktail and began drinking Bud Light. He left the Stone Crab around 6 p.m., then he went to a phone booth and made a call to his mother's home, where he spoke with his niece and told her he might not make it to their regular family dinner. The last time anyone reported seeing Danny alive was when he stopped into a convenience store near the Sheraton and bought a cup of coffee. The police had no idea who Danny was or what he was investigating. So when investigators found Danny's body with slashed wrists and an apparent suicide note nearby, it seemed like an open and shut case of suicide. But some people who looked at the investigation saw sloppy police work, or perhaps something even more nefarious at work. At first, no autopsy was even planned, and the body was quickly embalmed, even before Danny's family was made aware that it had happened. The medical examiner would later admit that embalming the body made it even more difficult to perform a proper autopsy. There was also an issue with the way investigators handled the crime scene. They allowed the bloody water to drain out of the tub without bothering to put any sort of cover over it to catch any potential evidence. A professional cleaning crew came in and cleaned the hotel room the day after Danny's death, further destroying any potential clues. Once Danny's family alerted the police to the things Danny had been looking into, they backpedaled a little and began a more proper investigation. But by then, much of the evidence was already gone. The day after Danny's body was found, Village Voice editor Dan Bischoff received an anonymous phone call informing him of Danny's death. Danny's brother told police that Danny had expressed how worried he was and that if he turned up dead any time in the near future, they shouldn't believe it was suicide. The medical examiner determined that Danny committed suicide by slashing his wrists, but members of Danny's family insisted that Danny was incredibly squeamish at the sign of blood and never would have cut himself. The ME conceded that the cuts were so deep that they also would have been incredibly painful for the victim. One of the cuts was so deep it even severed a tendon. There was no alcohol found in Danny's body, but he did find traces of codeine from Tylenol-3, small amounts of an antidepressant, and hydrocodone. But investigators didn't find any pill bottles among Danny Casolaro's personal effects. They also claimed there were no signs of a struggle, yet there were a number of discrepancies that say otherwise. In the initial autopsy report, the assistant medical examiner noted that Danny had a bruise on his arm and another on his head. Yet no cause for either injury was given. He was also missing the tips of three fingernails on one hand. Police also had no explanation for the shoelace found wrapped around Danny's neck, nor for the plastic garbage bags they found floating in the tub. Some people who have looked into the case have suggested that if Danny was murdered, the killer could have suffocated him by tying one of the bags over his head. It took several months before Danny Casolero's cause of death was finally listed as a suicide a second time. Eventually, the FBI would begin their own investigation into Danny's death, although they too would ultimately come to the same conclusion as the Martinsburg police. But even that's a little peculiar. 
Some journalists looking into Danny Castellaro's death submitted a Freedom of Information Act request for the FBI's file. And although the feds at first claimed they had 1,350 pages they were going to be able to release, the FBI later changed their statement and only handed over 29 pages, claiming the rest of the file had been mysteriously lost. So ultimately there are two ways we can look at Danny Castellaro's death. On the one hand, it could be just as the police said. Danny committed suicide, case closed. And that's not completely outside the realm of possibilities either. It turns out Danny Castellaro had recently been diagnosed with the early stages of multiple sclerosis. He was deeply in debt, and he had a massive balloon payment coming due in his home that it didn't look like he'd be able to afford. It's possible that Danny was so depressed over money woes, his developing MS, along with his inability to sell the book he'd been spent over a year researching, that he decided to end it all. A journalist for Vanity Fair even speculated that Danny may have committed suicide as a way to spark other people's interest in the octopus story. I don't know, that last bit sounds a little far-fetched to me. On the other hand, there's still all the strange and unexplained circumstances surrounding Danny's death. Even if you don't completely buy the story about some shadowy organization called the Octopus, it is true that Danny was poking his nose in a lot of shady businesses and covert government ops. All it would have taken was for him to cross the wrong individual during his investigations to potentially put his life in danger. One of the people who had warned Danny that his life might be in danger was a man named Robert Nichols. People who knew Nichols described him as a James Bond type, a mysterious and handsome world traveler who was proficient with guns and was involved in some businesses that some people claim weren't exactly on the up and up. Nichols ran a company called Meridian International Logistics, which did business all over the world, and, among other things, also owned the weapons manufacturing firm that hired Michael Reconosciuto to help develop weapons on the Cabazon Indian Reservation. According to Reconosciuto, one of the weapons he had been helping develop was a special kind of explosive that could explode with the force of an atomic bomb without all the radiation. According to FBI files, Nichols was also involved in money laundering and had ties to both the Gambino crime family as well as the Japanese Yakuza. Nichols, of course, vehemently denied all this and sued to protect his reputation. But if the FBI was correct, Nichols' warning to Danny Castellera probably should not have been ignored. Then there were a couple of other strange incidents that occurred back while Danny was doing his research. At a restaurant, Danny bumped into a former Special Forces operative who had worked for a company involved with the Inslaw case. The man offered to set up a meeting between Danny and an important source. Danny was instantly suspicious that he could have just happened to have bumped into the guy by chance, or that the man would have any reason to act so helpful toward him. On another occasion, Danny was at a party when he met a woman who insisted she go home with him and another friend. When she got there, she began talking knowingly about the Inslaw case telling them that she was close friends with a CIA official with ties to the octopus. Both Danny and his friend were unnerved by the allegedly chance encounter. So was Danny murdered? There are a lot of people, including a number of journalists and other people, including former U.S. Attorney General Elliot Richardson, who was working as Bill Hamilton's lawyer, who believe he was. Danny's story has been kept alive over the years in conspiracy circles as well as segments about his case on the TV show Unsolved Mysteries. In 2008, Danny's cousin Dominic Orlando wrote a play based on Danny's story that he called Danny Casolero Died for You. There's one last tidbit about Danny's death that I think only deepens the mystery. 
Danny was laid to rest on August 16, 1991 at Arlington Cemetery. Toward the end of the service, a limousine pulled up, out of which stepped a highly decorated military officer. None of Danny's friends or family knew who the man was. The officer never identified himself or even spoke to anyone. Instead, he walked directly over to Danny's casket, and just before it was lowered into the ground, he laid a medal on the casket's lid. The Conspiratus is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I need to thank several new Patreon supporters. Thanks a bunch to Robert, Greg, Helen, Jason, and my friends over at the Southern Fried True Crime Podcast for their support. You should check out their show, by the way, because it's really good. Also, Jason asked me to give a big shout-out to his fiancée, Fernanda, who's another big fan of the show. Thanks, Fernanda, and thanks, Jason. And thanks to everyone else who has taken the time to listen and support us. I'm so grateful to each and every one of you. Just a reminder, Patreon supporters get access to all sorts of goodies, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our patron-exclusive mini-episodes. In fact, our next mini-episode will discuss another series of mysterious deaths that may be tied to Danny Casalero's death that I didn't have time to fit into this episode. Something else you can do to help support the show is rate and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts. Each and every one of your ratings and reviews helps our standing on the Apple charts and helps spread the good word about the conspirators. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, we're also available on Stitcher, the Google Play Store, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast app. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com. Before we go, I wanted to play a quick clip telling you about another show you might like. Good evening, everybody, or morning or afternoon or whatever. My name is Adam. And I'm Matt. And we are Graveyard Tales. Now, if you like stories of ghosts, hauntings, the paranormal, preternatural, and the downright weird, and you enjoy a few laughs as well, then you should probably check us out. Find us anywhere you get your podcast. Come join our Facebook group at Graveyard Tales Podcast or on Twitter at G-R-V-E-Y. Just go search Graveyard Tales. That would be easier. We look forward to seeing you in the graveyard. See you soon.